I hope you had a good fourth. I, we did. We didn't do much. We, we cooked out a little bit. And, uh, and then that night, we came up with a strategy that actually worked. This is the first year our, our dog has not considered it the end of the world. Because we, first of all, she's 14 years old, so she's, part, she's getting pretty deaf. That helps. Uh, but then also, we brought in a bunch of fans, noisy box fans. So... If you wanted to break into the burger house last Monday night would have been the time. I would not have heard you. You could have taken me for everything I had because we were in there with all this noise. And so we didn't hear the fireworks and our dog slept and that meant we slept. Um, so hallelujah for that. Hallelujah for box fans. But I uh, want to review what we talked about last week. As we started chapter four, chapter four starts by telling, by warning us not to be a friend of the world. Not meaning the planet or the people on it, because clearly God wants us to love the people who live here. But instead, don't be a friend of the way things are. The, the system of the, the philosophy, the guarding, guiding philosophy and values that, that people today and people throughout history have said make for success, make for the good life. Don't buy into that stuff. Uh, don't, another way to say it, don't seek your own happiness, but instead seek godly sorrow leading to repentance. That doesn't mean it's wrong to be happy. It doesn't mean it's wrong to enjoy the gifts God gave you. But the primary goal of your life shouldn't be happiness. The primary goal of your life should be holiness. And in order to accomplish that, you have to trust in the Lord. You have to seek Him first. In verse 10, the last verse before the one we're going to read, we're going to start with, said, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Now, let me show you the transition between those two. So he's talking about friendship with the world, and then he moves on to the importance of humility and the danger of pride. So here's the link between those two. Last week I said, the values of this world are things like, I matter more than other people matter. Now, none of us would say that out loud, but that's the way we tend to live. I matter more than other people matter. Uh, my desires are more important than God's commands. Even some of the best Christians on earth, if, if you got them down and, and made them speak the honest truth, they would say, yeah, I, I try to obey God's commands when it's good for me, when it's easy for me, when it's convenient for me. But I always try to find the loophole in those commands when there's something I really want to do. And, and so that's the way of the world. That's what James is warning us against. And that is pride. Pride is the original sin. Pride is the sin that birthed all the others. In fact, you could make the argument that all sin has pride at its root. Think about the, the, the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Why did Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It wasn't because it was so shiny. It wasn't because they were hungry. It was because they wanted what God, what God wouldn't give them. They wanted to be gods themselves. They wanted to be able to call their own shots. That's pride. Pride is saying, I matter more. Pride is saying, my preferences, my desires are more important than anything else, and I must fight for my own things, no matter what it does to God, no matter what it does to others. Uh, and so whenever we sin, we are using that same value. And this is deceptive. When you use the word pride, we use the English word pride in some very positive ways, don't we? You probably your parents, when you were little, said, take pride in your work, take pride in your appearance. Take pride in your family. That's not a bad thing. It's just a word that, that, is, that shares a concept that uh, is not good. It's, it's fine to, have, to be proud 
of your country, to be proud of a team you're on, to, to wear your colors with pride, so to speak. None of that is sinful. It unfortunately shares a word with a concept that is of this world, and that is the idea that I come first, that my preferences, my, uh, my desires are more important than anything else. And another reason we have a hard time with this concept is because when we hear the word pride in a negative sense, we think of arrogance. We think of flashiness. Uh, we think of an athlete like uh, most of you are old enough to, I guess probably all of you are old enough to remember Muhammad Ali, right? What, what was his main catchphrase? He said a lot of things. His main catchphrase was, I am the greatest, right? Uh, now, I think sometimes he was doing comedy. He, he knew he was he was uh, he had an audience and he was playing a, a character. But that has really inspired the way a lot of athletes carry themselves today, and that's what we see as pride: someone who's arrogant and I'm better than you because I can dunk a basketball or I can throw a ball or I can run fast. Um, we we see it in a CEO who dresses in expensive suits and drives a car that is worth more than your whole house. That's pride, right? He, he's flashy. He's arrogant. He thinks his wealth gives him the right to do whatever he wants. Or a movie star who pouts and, and refuses to do her job because things didn't go her way. And we look at that and say, oh, what an entitled person that is. Just because we watch people pay money to watch her on a movie screen doesn't mean she, the rules don't apply to her. We say, okay, that's pride. And we like to say things like that. We enjoy hearing stories like that and talking about them over coffee with our friends. Why? Because it sort of absolves us. Because we say, I would never do something like that. And we're right. I doubt any of you ever seriously said, I'm the greatest. I mean, you may have said it jokingly. I doubt any of you really thinks that anybody's impressed by your car or your suit or, or that you should get, uh, you should be entitled to certain privileges just because of some talent you have. I mean, that's just not the way ordinary people think. And so we hear these extreme versions of pride and we think, okay, that's pride and I'm okay because I'm not like that. I'm humble. I am good. But it's not true. Pride is a sticky wicket. It, it manifests itself in any number of ways. And the passage we're going to look at tonight shows us two ways that, manifest, that pride manifests itself that you maybe have never heard of. And they are how we speak about our neighbors and how we speak about our plans. So let's look at that first one. How we speak about our neighbor. Verse 11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, so this is where the rubber meets the road because this, what, what James is talking about here is one of the besetting sins of polite, moral people just like the people in this room. Most of you, I'd say pretty much all of you, are polite and moral by nature. And yet, we're the exact kind of people who are most likely to stumble into this sin. We speak evil about our neighbor. Uh, let me just say, I, I grew up in a very good church around some really good people. Really, really good people. Uh, my grandparents, I remember, uh, they were always the first ones. Whenever the doors were open, they were always the first ones there. So they could watch everybody else coming in, you know, and see. There was not much to do in, in Hope, Texas, you know, to see who's, who's going to show up. And, oh, well, so-and-so's not there. I wonder what's going on with them. And I learned early on in life that recreation, 
if, if you didn't know what else to talk about, you talked about your neighbors. You talked about, you know, have you seen so-and-so? She's gained so much weight. Goodness gracious. You know, oh, Mr. So-and-so, he hadn't been in church in a long time. I wonder what he's doing. I wonder what, I bet I know. You, you know, I, here's what I think. And, and listen, I had a great grandmother. I, I, would, I, I miss her to this day. She was a wonderful woman, would, would have done anything for anybody. But this was one of her besetting sins. And as a result, all of us participated in it. All of us did that. And, and you, you could probably tell the same story about members of your family, maybe even yourself. And yet, we often miss the harm that causes. It seems like such a victimless crime. Because you're just sitting around with your family or a few friends, and you're pointing out the flaws and the failings and the silly habits of other people in a way that sometimes is funny, sometimes is, uh, sometimes is informative. You know, kids, don't go around him. He's, he's a grumpy guy. And, and you know, if you, if you talk to him on a Sunday morning when things haven't gone well for you, it, it may not go well for you. So uh, we think it's a victimless crime. And yet, it never really is. So, uh, just one story. I could tell a jillion stories, and you could too, because you've seen it. But I knew a young woman about my age um, who volunteered to lead the vacation Bible school in her church. A little small church. Um, every year, the same woman in that church had done VBS, had been the VBS director for decades. So she was tired. She was ready for somebody else to take over. This young woman about my age volunteered. And by the testimony of several people in that church who I knew personally, it was the best vacation Bible school ever. I mean, they had, they had just all kinds of new, the kids had a great time. More kids came than ever. More kids got saved than ever. It was wonderful. But then some people in that church started talking behind her back about the fact that she had spent more money than they had ever spent on VBS before. Now, what she told me was, pastor didn't tell her how much she could or couldn't spend. He just said, here you go. And there was no budget. It was just, take it, go. And that church had tons of money, like a lot of, a lot of small churches that had been around a long time. They had a whole bunch of money in the bank that they weren't doing anything with. So she thought, well, why not spend it on something like reaching kids for Christ? But when the word got back to her that people were grumbling about how much she had spent of the church's money, she said, I'm never doing this again. And she kept her word. She never volunteered for any other leadership position in a church, as far as I know, the rest of her life. So what seems like a victimless crime can have devastating effects we don't even know about. So let's look at what James says. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He says, if you speak evil against your brother, you're speaking evil against the law and judging the law. Now, what does that mean? How does the law come into this? Well, James doesn't say, but I assume he's talking about Leviticus 19.18. You know Leviticus 19.18, even if you don't know you know it, because it's love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that was, that was 1B of the most important law in the whole law of Moses. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. If you wouldn't want someone to talk about you that way, if you wouldn't want someone to make assumptions about your motives the way we do sometimes, or take something you did and even though it's not necessary to be retold, you retell it anyway. If you wouldn't want your biggest mistakes to be passed around 
from person to person. If you wouldn't want people to caricature you, you know what caricaturing is, right? You, you take someone's characteristics and you exaggerate them. And suddenly someone who is just sort of outgoing becomes a mile a minute talker who can't shut up, right? We, if you wouldn't want someone to do that to you, then you don't do that to someone else. There's another problem, though, and James identifies it. If you talk about your neighbor, you speak evilly about your neighbor, you put yourself in the position of God. He is the judge. In the end, only he will judge. Only he will render judgment. And only he knows the full truth. This is a humbling thing to realize. And I've been humbled by this many times as a pastor because I've made assumptions about people. And hopefully, in most of those cases, I haven't verbalized those assumptions. But then, then later they've come to me and, and told me what they're struggling with. And I've realized, oh, well, <laughs> I thought you were this kind of person. Turns out that because of what you're going through, you're not that kind of person at all. You're just going through something that, that has you down. For instance, you may, there may be a man who you think, that is the most stuck-up, standoffish person I've ever met, won't even talk to you. Well, it turns out, He's so painfully shy, just terrified of uh, relationships and contact because he's been burned in the past, or maybe he's just wired that way. It's a, a supreme effort just for him to make conversation. You don't know that. God does, but you're putting yourself in the position of God by saying, I don't like him. He's not friendly. Or, or uh, you hear of a woman whose marriage is breaking up, and you make an assumption. You say, well, you know, I guess she's just not a very faithful wife. I'm not saying God ever approves of divorce, but what if there's abuse going on in that home? You don't know that, and God does. Uh, maybe that rebellious kid who you think, boy, somebody ought to just take him out and just beat the snot out of him. That's all he needs. Maybe that rebellious kid is struggling with profound mental illness, and, and that's why he's acting out the way he is. Uh, maybe that man who you haven't seen in church for six months and you've assumed in your mind, well, he's just... He's just not a, as good a Christian as I thought he was. And, and, you know, that's the problem with Christians today. We're just not as committed to the Lord as we used to be. Maybe his wife passed away or a loved one passed away and he just hasn't been able to get back into church since then. Or maybe something happened in the church that hurt him deeply and he wants to come back. He just hasn't been able to force himself to. I'm not saying he shouldn't come back. He should. I'm saying if you were in his shoes, maybe you'd have, be having an equally difficult time. I'm saying God knows the truth and you don't. And we shouldn't make assumptions about what we don't know. Let me break in though and say there is still a need for discernment. There, there are plenty of people who it seems the only scripture they know is judge not lest you be judged. They know it from the King James, right? Judge not lest you be judged. And so that, that's the problem with Christians. You're always judging people. Okay, so when someone comes to you and says, judge not lest you be judged, one thing you should ask them is, so that means if you've hired a young woman to babysit your kids and you find out she's, got a, she's been in prison for assault, you, you're going to keep that appointment? You're going to let her watch your kids with a history of violence? Well, no. Oh, well, then you're, you're judging her. Or you've got a surgery scheduled for Thursday and a friend comes to you and says, don't go to that doctor. He botched my surgery and I, I haven't been able to walk right since. And there's 30 other people that have filed malpractice against him. Are you going to cancel that surgery? I would. Haven't you judged that doctor? 
So we need to understand something. Judge not in Matthew 7, when Jesus says it, he isn't saying be a fool. He isn't saying trust someone that has proven themselves untrustworthy. He's saying don't judge people the way you wouldn't want to be judged. Because he, he goes on after that and says, for the, for, with the measure you judge others, you will be judged. And he's right. Judge people with the eyes of grace that you would want them to have toward you. If I were a felon, you would not want me to watch your kids. Actually, you probably don't want me to watch your kids anyway. I'm just telling you. Because I'm not the most attentive. But... That's what judge not lest you be judged is about. And you know what he says next after that? He says, he, he talks about if you've got a, a plank in your own eye, you've got to remove that plank before you can pull the speck out of your neighbor's eye. The point is, you shouldn't be focusing on the sins of others. You should be focusing on your own sin. You should be focusing on right, your own personal righteousness rather than taking delight in seeing the sins of others. It does not, it does not preclude the need for discernment. There are so many times where we have to make judgments about people. As an employer, you have to decide, is this person or this person the better person to hire? In, in dating, when you're single, do you just marry the first person who shows an interest in you? I sure hope not. You make a discerning decision. And on and on and on it goes. The point is, we should always discern with grace. We should always judge the way we would want to be judged. So this has to do with pride, this idea of judging others and taking delight in speaking evil of them, because judging others makes us feel better about ourselves. It makes us look better. It also makes us the center of attention because other people love to hear bad stuff about other people. That's just human nature. I guarantee you, you've observed this. You could all be sitting around talking about Current events, you could be talking about sports, you could be talking about even something as important as the Lord himself, but someone else comes in and says, did you hear what so-and-so did? And immediately, every person from every cubicle is there. They want to hear. They want to hear. That's our human nature. So how do we exercise discernment? How do we live as people who are wise without being judgmental? What if a word of discernment needs to be spoken? How do we know when to say, listen, here's something I know that you need to know about this person? How do we know? Well, here's a good rule of thumb. If you wouldn't say it if their mom or dad were in the room, then don't say it. Say it in the way you would. If you would say it, say it in the way you would if their mom or dad were in the room. You know, Mrs. Berger, I'm sorry, but, but your son is just not a good driver. I saw him the other day go the wrong way down a, down, down a one-way street. I don't think he should be driving the, the teenagers to student camp. If it's true and it's important, you need to say it, but say it graciously. That's not speaking evil of someone. Speaking evil of someone is you don't say anybody to someone who can make a difference in that situation, but you spread it around the whole church. Did you hear that Jeff Berger is driving students to student camp, even though he's got 50 tickets for, uh, you know, for, for bad driving? That's not true. It's just an example. But that's speaking evil. So don't say in front of, in, behind their back what you wouldn't want to say in front of them or their mom or dad. And, and don't take pleasure in it. It should hurt us to speak a word of discernment. 
man, I, I don't like speaking against someone else, but you need to know this. Before you let your daughter date that young man, before you send your child to that school or to that church, before you invest with that business partner, you need to know this. It should pain you to have to say it, but you have to say it. And one more thing, have the courage to defend those who are being spoken against. Now, this is something that I learned from a colleague once. Um, I've, I've talked about it many times from a, a church that I pastored in Pasadena. He's still there, Jim Overton. And one of the things I really admired about Jim is no matter who it was, even somebody that I know got on Jim's nerves, if people were speaking against that person in Jim's presence, he would say something like, well, I don't think we should say those kinds of things. <coughs> now, can I be honest? That will not make you very popular. People don't like being made to feel like sinners. So when someone comes to you with a bit of juicy gossip and you say, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm really not interested in, in hearing something about, about him. We should probably go to him. If you've got a problem with him, I'll go with you and we can talk to him face, face to face. But he needs to hear instead of talking about him behind his back. That person's not going to like you anymore. But eventually, they'll come to see you're right. Eventually, you can change the entire dynamic of a family, of a church, of a community, of a company, by having the courage to defend those who are being spoken of in an evil way. Do not speak evil against other people. Who are you to judge your neighbor? That's one form of pride. The other form of pride that James identifies is how we speak about our plans. So verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now this is something I need to share with you just because I think it's interesting. It doesn't really, it doesn't add to your interpretation of this verse, but it gives you some background. One of the things we don't understand about biblical times is how business travel worked back then. We think of business travel as uh, this, this guy is going to a meeting in New York, or this woman is going to uh, try to sell a product in Omaha, right? That's, that's business travel today. Here's what business travel was like in biblical times. Notice he says, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there. Who does that now? So I read a book a couple of years ago. I highly recommend it. It's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, written by two former missionaries. They lived most of their lives overseas, and they just noticed that when you don't live in America or Europe, you live in what we would call the third world, you notice there are certain things that give you a new perspective on the Scriptures. God told a story. He, he lived in one of, the, one of the many islands that makes up Indonesia, and at one point he and his family wanted to have some shelves built. And so they asked around, they said, is there a carpenter around? Well, no, not here, but on the, the, the next island over. So they, they sent a letter to this island, to this carpenter. So he sent them back a letter, said, I'll be there in a couple weeks. So he shows up, him and his son, and they pitched a tent in the missionary's driveway and got up every morning and 
built a fire and cooked their own breakfast. And after they'd had breakfast, they'd go into his house and they'd work on the shelves. In the meantime, as all this was happening, people in the neighborhood noticed that tent and said, oh, the carpenter's here. So throughout the week, people kept coming up and saying, when you're done with his shelves, would you come fix my gate? When you're done with that gate, would you come build a new fence? Would you come build a, a, a little house for my mother-in-law? Would you come da-da-da-da-da? And the guy ended up staying, camping out in the missionary's driveway for a year and a half or something like that. And the missionary said, that's not the way we operate in America. But in the third world, in the undeveloped world, you go where the work is. And if you're away from your family for six months, for 18 months, for, tw for two years, well, your family understands you've got to make a living. Which gives, shed some light on some stories in Scripture, like Joseph and Mary. They went to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born. But then you notice, when the wise men come to them, most scholars think that Jesus was about two by then. They're still in Bethlehem. Why? Well, what I was told was, well, you know, they didn't want to be back in Nazareth because Jesus and Mary weren't, mar weren't married when Jesus was born. But this missionary said it's probably more likely that when Joseph got to Bethlehem, people found out he was a carpenter. And they said, hey, would you fix my fence? Would you build my house? Would you work on my roof? And so he stayed until Herod drove him out. Here's another story it sheds light on. You know this, the characters Priscilla and Aquila? Paul met them. They had this in common. They were both tent makers, and they were some of his best workers in church. One of the things you notice in the New Testament is they keep bouncing around. First time you meet them, they're in Corinth, and then later they're in Ephesus, and then they're back in Rome. Well, why? I always just assumed it was because Paul said, hey, Priscilla and Aquila, go help out Apollos in Ephesus. More likely, it's because they were moving with the business. Maybe Ephesus had a festival where there were tents that were needed, and later on Corinth had their version of the Olympic Games, and then they're able to move back to Rome because uh, Claudius, the, the, guy, the Caesar who had thrown out all the Jews, had died, and okay, now I can go back to the big city and make a living. Again, none of that affects the way you interpret this passage. I just find it interesting. That's the way business travel worked back then. James's point is, don't assume you know. You may say, I'm going to go fix this guy's shelves, and if I'm there for a year and a half, it'll be because I've got enough work to do, so see you later, honey. Say, I don't know what's going to happen. James literally says they ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, how many of you have grown up around people who said, Lord willing, all the time? I did. I, I, I say that myself sometimes. Lord willing, we're going to do this or that. Lord willing, the creek don't rise. That's the other one. That is absolutely not in the Bible. The creek don't rise is not in the Bible. But listen, there's nothing wrong with saying, Lord willing, we're going to have church on Sunday and, and it's going to be a great day and Robert's back and the choir will be singing. And yeah, Lord willing, that's fine, but that's not what James is commanding here. Just mechanically saying Lord willing is not what James is commanding here. You know how I know that? Because if it is, then Paul is breaking the command of God over and over again in his letters. Uh, give you a couple of examples. Romans 15, 28, he writes to the church at Rome and said, I'm going to come see you and then I'm going to leave you and go to Spain. He doesn't say, if the Lord is willing, I'm going to go to Spain. He says, that's my plan. As it turns out, we're pretty sure Paul never made it to Spain. 
So it sort of proves James's point. First uh, Corinthians sixteen five, he says to the Corinthians, after passing through Macedonia, I will come see you. Again, he doesn't say if the Lord is willing; he just says it. So this is not about saying Lord willing. This is instead about the attitude with which you make your plans. Let me say something else. This also doesn't mean it's wrong to ever plan ahead. All you got to do is read the book of Proverbs and see that the Bible commends planning ahead, doing your best to try to make sure you've laid up things for the future. That is wise living. There's nothing wrong with it. It does mean we should make our plans with great humility. Okay, let me use pastors as an example. What is a successful pastor? A successful pastor, we think, a lot of us, that a successful pastor is one who is able to make his vision happen. He shows up, he says, I see that this church in five years is going to be running 3,000 people with six Sunday services, and we're going to plant 15 churches, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And if he accomplishes it, he writes a book and he becomes a multimillionaire. That's a guy who knows how to get things done. And I'm not taking a swipe at pastors who've been successful in that manner. My point is that pastors need to understand, I need to understand, I hope I do, that my plans are not necessarily God's plans. A couple of years ago, we shared our vision for 10,000 transforming relationships by the year 2030. I want to make very clear, that's our vision. That's not something I went up on the top of Mount Hermon and God handed it to me on a golden scroll. Okay? I don't know if that's God's plan for our church. I hope it is. I hope we reach that goal. I think it would be glorifying to him. I can honestly say, I think that it is something that is God-honoring and biblical, but it doesn't mean that's God's plan for First Baptist Conroe. You've heard the saying, man plans, God laughs, right? And we need to keep that in mind. We need to understand that our plans are fluid. We are at God's disposal not the other way around. And one of the ways that's really going to help us, it's going to help us have joy in the midst of our circumstances. Because if we've got it all worked out in our minds that, okay, um, the way things are going now, I'm going to be able to pay off my house in three years. I'm going to be able to retire in eight years. And when that happens, we're going to buy this piece of property over here, and that's where we're going to move to. And I'm going to get a job at this little, where, at this little uh, hardware store that my uncle runs, and, and we're going to live there until you know the grandkids will move next to us, and everything's going to be great. Well, you know what? There's a good chance none of that's going to happen. And you know it. There's going to, you're going to lose all your retirement money or your kids aren't going to want to have anything to do with you or, okay, I'm being dire, but you know what I mean. Things don't work out the way we think they will often. And when they don't work out the way we've planned, we often blame God and we get mad at him. Instead of saying, God knows more than I know. He saw this coming. Nothing wrong with making a plan like that. It sounds really good, and if it works out, good for you. I'd like it better if you stayed here, personally. But what matters is that you know that you're at God's disposal. To me, the way you apply this is, humility is to tell God frequently, Lord, here are the things I want. 
here are the, here's what I think would, would, be, would be the best for me and my family and would enable me to serve you well. But in the end, I would rather do what you have planned for me than accomplish my plans. Can you do that and mean it? Can you say it often enough and mean it? Can, can, you, can you say it when you talk to others? So what are, you, what are you planning to do next week? Well, here's what I'm planning. But God may have another plan. That, that you know, uh, tropical storm may show up and, and cancel your cruise. Your, your plan to work until you're this certain age may completely end when your company decides, you know what, we're going to reconfigure everything. Tell God frequently, I would rather do your will than accomplish my own plans. And that's going to help us a great deal. There's a movie, uh, Jimmy Stewart's probably my favorite actor of all time, if not my favorite, he's definitely in the top five. And one of his movies is not as well known as Shenandoah. How many of y'all have seen Shenandoah? Yeah. I figured that there were some Shenandoah lovers. So at the beginning of the movie, you probably remember. It's, it's set right at the beginning of the Civil War. Jimmy is a, a farmer in Virginia. He wants to be completely neutral. Doesn't want to get involved in the upcoming war at all. Beginning of the movie, he's sitting there with his, I think there's seven sons. There's a bunch of boys uh, all around this table. He's a widower, so he's got no wife, but uh, they're about to eat. And so he leads a prayer. And I wrote it down. Here's the prayer he prays. He prays, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cooked the harvest. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eaten if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you anyway, Lord, for the food we're about to eat. Amen. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know. If you haven't, I won't ruin it for you. But a series of things happens in the course of that movie. You should see it. It's, a, it's an excellent movie. By the end of the movie, he, he, you see him praying that same prayer, but he can't finish it. He can't finish it. He, can't, he breaks down before he gets to the point of saying, we did it all ourselves. He can't do it. And to me, that's just a lesson. You have, you have a choice in life. You can pursue humility or life will humble you. One of the two things is going to happen. You can pursue humility by repenting of pride whenever you see any trace of it in your life, by praying that God would teach you to be more humble, by doing things that lead to humility, like serving others, like refusing to seek credit for any good thing you've done, by letting other people have the spotlight, by, by refusing to argue with people who you disagree with over things that don't really matter, by, by letting other people have the last word, even though you think they're not quite as smart as you. Those are all things that, those are habits that lead to humility. You can pursue that. That's the road less traveled. Few people do that. But if you don't do that, and I'll tell you, pursuing that will not get you on the cover of any magazines. It won't make you one penny richer. But if you don't pursue that, life will humble you. It absolutely will. Either way, your pride is going to be destroyed. You can either destroy it yourself. It's sort of like killing fire ants, right? You can let them take over or you can fight them. And it's like killing fire ants in the sense that you don't just put out the poison once. It's an ongoing struggle. It's, it's every week you walk out, nope, there's another mound that's popped up. I got to hit that one. And you got to attend to it or it will get you. 
Pursue humility or life will humble you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you showed us what humility looks like when you, when you served us, when you laid down your life for us, when you took on the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Lord, I pray that you would point your white-hot spotlight upon every trace of pride within us. Help us, O oh Lord, to be humble and gracious in the way we speak about others, knowing that we don't know the circumstances. Lord, show us how to be wise and discerning, but not judgmental. Lord, I pray that as we make plans, help us to make them with wisdom, but also humility, knowing that you are the one who decides in the end. And help us to rejoice even when our plans don't come to pass, because we know that your will is always right. Lord, none of these things come naturally to us. And for a lot of us, We've got a long way to go, but I pray that we would pursue humility and so that we could serve others and glorify you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.